we read that he was a devout man. Now, that's a word that we don't hear that much very often anymore. And it has been in the modern usage taken away so much from where it originated. It's sometimes misused. What does it mean to be devout? Well, it means in its original sense, one who is devoted to to the Lord and lives that way. Unfortunately, the word has now been applied to followers of other things, away from the way it was designed. But here we understand from devout that he was a careful man seeking to do what was right according to God's commands. So back in chapter 9 and verse 10, he receives a vision from the Lord. The Lord here being Christ himself. Remember, Jesus spoke directly to Paul because, or Saul, because at that time it's Saul, because he was to be commissioned as an apostle. When he comes to addressing Ananias, he does it in a vision. It's not the same thing. So Paul is being prepared for his work as an apostle. And it is quite interesting, I think, that if Paul or Saul was to be an apostle, why wouldn't one of the other apostles be sent to him to anoint him or to prepare him for this work? But instead we have this devout man who will be the one to explain to Saul the things he needed to know, the words that the Lord himself had told him to speak. So as we look at this passage this morning, we'll find two things. We'll look at his calling, the calling of Ananias, and we'll look at his caution as well in the midst of that calling. So first, his calling, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. He replies, much like young Samuel, when Samuel is being called as he lays on his cot, and the Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel says, here I am, Lord. Here am I. It was a, a ready response. He had been listening for his Lord. And he was ready to reply to what the Lord had to say to him. <clears throat> the Lord says this, The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. So he gives him the place and the house to go to, and, and then the man to whom he will be addressing. Saul of Tarsus, and even what Saul is doing at that very moment, he is praying. And further information is given to him in verse 12. And in a vision, he, Saul, 
has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. So in a vision, he's seen this man, Ananias, coming to him. Now here's a point to consider. What is revealed to Ananias is also revealed to Saul. Uh, see, we have a lot of people running around saying, I've got a vision, I've got a prophetic word. But somehow no one else has that word. So what is revealed to Ananias is revealed to Saul and therefore proved to be true. I always remember that story that Charles Spurgeon told that uh, there was one time that it was a, a man came to him and uh, told him that it had been revealed to him by God that he was to speak at the Metropolitan Tabernacle that day. And Spurgeon replied, of course, that when it was revealed to me, then I will let you. This mutual preparation would be repeated in the case of Cornelius and Peter, that they would receive the same vision, basically, from the Lord. Now, some are quick to say, well, we don't have an account where Paul speaks of receiving this vision, which leads some to ask, or leads me to ask at least, why bring that up? Because it's here. It's not like there's superfluous things added. If Saul received that vision, he received it. Because why? Well, because it tells us here that he received the same vision. And here, the same words of Jesus given to both. After all, if it's not given by Paul or Saul in other places, then what's the big deal? Well, the big deal here is this. It's Ananias that is going to go to, to Saul. And he's the one that needs the encouragement, as we will see in just a second. He needs assurance. And what an honor for this man. He is going to have the honor and the blessing of telling Saul of Christ's words about him and to be the means by which Jesus will restore his sight. He will be the one who will lay his hands on the first human being ever to be called as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so we have a direct connection to the work of Ananias, the work that God had called him to do. So that's his calling. Now we look, secondly, at his caution. Well, after being told what he was supposed to do in verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, 
he begins the sentence, Lord, I have heard from many. Now he dresses Jesus as God, which is very good and very important. But he says, Lord, I have heard. Which means what? He has not experienced it firsthand. I've heard about it. And I've heard about it from many. Well, how many are many? What constitutes many? How many times do you have to hear from before you say, oh, now it's many? And there is no doubt in my mind that there are some in Damascus who had come from Jerusalem and had seen some of this firsthand. So he's not speaking of, of something that uh, is just kind of a rumor. But you see what follows. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Your people, Jesus. And we want to point out here that this is the first time in the New Testament where Christians are referred to as saints. Saints, people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are gods, who have been, the word saint means to be set apart by God, for God. So therefore, what he is saying here when he says, your saints, he's saying, God, your people. These are your people. His saints, his separated and sanctified ones. He said, I've heard the, the trouble that he's, he's given to these people. And then, Second, it's a reference to Christ's deity. As these are the designations of the people of God. Hagios is the word in Greek. It means things that are sacred to God. So therefore, the word he uses shows that he's thinking of Jesus as God, seeing Jesus as God, and the people that follow Christ as God's people. Now, this is important. Why? Because Ananias is a Jew. But he's seeing that the people of God are really those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Ananias goes further in his alarm when you come to verse 14. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all those who call on your name. Let's first remember this. He's not refusing to go. He's not saying, oh, no, Lord, uh-uh, <laughs> no, no, don't send me there. He's not pulling a Jonah and saying, let me get the first ship out of here. And we can applaud him for that. And we can understand to some degree the caution. But here's the thing. Ananias makes a common mistake. And it's one, if we think about it, we all make at a certain time, sometimes more than we'd like to think about. Certainly more times than we'd like to admit. We suffer from what Calvin writes as we suffer from our own narrow ignorance 
our own narrow ignorance. Ananias says, I've heard from many, many about this man. And this many seems to have a more profound effect on him than what the Lord is telling him. Ananias only knows of the old Saul, but Jesus knows of the transformed Saul. Ananias has narrow ignorance. The Lord knows all things. And it comes out in the fact that he tries to... So, seemingly, now, he's not doing this on purpose. And he, I'm not casting any aspersions on Ananias. I think he's a man to be respected and, and, and held in, in esteem. But there's this pattern that shows, and the Bible is not reticent to show these kind of things in any manner. But the disciples also had this same problem of narrow ignorance. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, let's look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. What happened next? Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. He rebukes the Lord, yeah. All of a sudden, Peter knows more than Jesus. And yet Peter doesn't know a portion of what the Lord knows. So that reply from Jesus, but he, Christ, turned to Peter said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, a stumbling block, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. See, Jesus was there to show him the things of God and to bring those things to him, but he's thinking as a man. Well, let's look at John 13. John 13, let's begin at verse 6. Jesus is in the midst of washing the disciples' feet. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, You have narrow ignorance. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. What's Peter's reply? He shall never wash my feet. Another attempt to correct the wayward Jesus. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, I have you have no part with me. 
Well, then Simon Peter replies, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Uh, let's look at one other place here. In Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we've been reading on verse 35. As they're crossing the sea. On that same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in a boat as he was. And other little boats also were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he... Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? Now that's a cry that has been uttered from many a sad heart. Perhaps, maybe even our own. Jesus, don't you care? Narrow ignorance. Who is in the boat with them? Jesus is in the boat with them. They should know Jesus pretty well by now. But yet they say, do you not care? And Ananias, he can only see what he knows. And again, I would not say that he is refusing. But he is questioning. Since like all of us, he has a strong desire to live. But here's the important point. We cannot judge the Lord by our own wisdom. And yet, that faulty mechanism is often what we use as our means of measurement. Some would say, well, as a Christian, you're called to have blind faith. And that is a very foolish statement to make because faith by very its very nature has to have its object and you have to know the object. So therefore, we are called to have informed faith. Not blind faith, but informed faith. Years ago, someone came to me and said, hey, my pastor said that if, if God tells you to run through that wall, then you better run through that wall. What do you think about that statement? I said, well, if 
Christ tells me to walk through the, run through that wall, he has a pretty good reason for me to do so and has already made that wall so it will give way. But then again, normally he doesn't ask us to do really crazy things. But at the same time, we can't measure what he says. Just think, here's these, these disciples, they've been out fishing all night. And they haven't caught a thing. And Jesus stands on the shore and says, cast the net over to the other side. Oh. Do you not understand? We've been out here all night. Our nets are empty. Cast the net on the other side. What happens? They obey. And they come up with a catch of fish that is about to break the nets because it's so heavy. See, in their wisdom, they said, well, you know, we're fishermen. And if we haven't caught all night, it's just not the right conditions. We don't operate out of no knowledge of our Lord, but out of what he has revealed to himself. And he has perfect knowledge. The fear of man caused Ananias to question Jesus. But the response from the Lord is worth noting. Of course it is. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. Go. There's nothing to worry about. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. But the key here is in the midst of the reticence Jesus says to him, go. He's a chosen vessel of mine. <laughs> you have nothing to worry about. But Jesus doesn't upbraid him. He doesn't say, oh, you foolish man. He just tells him to go and he tells him why. Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine. See, God knew the heart of Ananias. He knew his thoughts and his fears. He tells him, go, there's nothing to fear. There is no excuse. It is the case more often than some might admit. We want to say we fully trust. But who are we directly related to? We're related to Adam. And how did Satan work in the mind of Adam and his wife? Let's put a little distrust in there. God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because he knows that the moment you eat of it, you'll be just like him. You can't really trust God. And there's enough of the old nature in us the old Adamic nature that says, yeah, I believe. And that's why one of the best prayers ever uttered in the history of the church is, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Help my trust. My distrust. Lord, I trust, 
Help my distrust. And there's another desire here that we all have is we like our comfort zones. And for some people, the comfort zone is a whole lot smaller than it is for others. Ananias is being asked to go beyond his comfort zone. I'm comfort here reading the law, the law of, of Moses. I'm comfortable doing these things. I'm comfortable with all that I have in my daily routine, but I'm not really comfortable with going to Saul. There's another thing that he falls into in the rest of much of the church falls into as well what Martin Luther called the theology of glory. The more devout we are, the more holy we are, the easier our way will be because God will not put bad things in our place. It's like the way the world looks at things, power and prestige is built upon number. The greater the number, the greater the power. And here's Ananias thing. I'm me, myself, going to this man who has the authority, the whole Jewish leadership behind him. I'm one but he's got a whole army. Power and influence are related to size. Luther brought up the fact that we are to follow the theology of the cross, that God achieves his intended purposes by doing quite the opposite of what people might expect. And when it happened, let's look at the, the first thing we would look to is the cross. Because at the cross, it seems that sin and evil have a victory. <clears throat> it looks that way. But in letting sin and evil have their victory, the Lord wins. The Lord conquers. Real strength is demonstrated through Apparent weakness, as Carl Truman said. And it's a good lesson for us to understand. Ananias, I'm sending you to go to this man who, even though you're afraid of, you're going in my name and in my power and in my protection. Now Saul is becoming strong by being made weak. And one who is not a non-apostle is going to bring sight to the one who will be an apostle. You see, we would think, well, let's get one of the apostles to ordain this apostle. But it doesn't do that. In fact, Paul in Acts 22 refers to as, as someone called Ananias. A man called Ananias. Well, if you, you looked in the phone book of the time, there would be Probably 80 Ananiases. <clears throat> Saul's becoming strong by being weak. 
We don't ever need to doubt God. And we must see that His ways are not our ways. Perhaps if it was us, we would prefer that God would say, take a posse and go to Saul. I'll close by asking a couple questions. You read the Old Testament. You read the Kings and the Chronicles. First and Second Samuel. How many battles did the Israelites win by simply showing up? Most of them. Most of them. God says, I've already taken care of it. Just go. What brought the greatest calamity to David's reign? Now, immediately, the minds go, oh, well, it's Bathsheba. <laughs> no. No, it wasn't. The greatest calamity to David's reign was when he told Joab, go out and number the people. Go out. And Joab says, it's not a good idea. David, it's not a good idea. Do it. And in fact, Joab and the rest of his people who went out to take that census didn't even cover the whole of the tribes because they felt they were doing the wrong thing. And you might remember that God through the prophet Gad speaks to David and says, you've got three choices. I'm going to put you in the hands of your enemies for 30 days or somewhere along that line. I'm going to bring a famine for an extended period of time. Or I'm going to bring three days of pestilence. There were over 70,000 people. David said, it's better for me to fall into the hands of God than to my enemies. So he chooses the three days, but there's over 70,000 men who die during that time. Why? Because David thought that here I am, I, but I need to know how big my army is so I can have confidence. And God has told, and told him so many times, just go. Go and I will, I will make them run before you. It was never a case of how many men he had, but the fact that he had God. And that mindset still exists today. And I close by, we come to this perfect example here. Ananias says to Jesus, I have heard about him. Jesus says to Ananias, I know about him. Let's stand together for prayer.